Welcome to Highway Christian Community Sermon Downloads. For more sermons, please visit our website. We know you will be blessed as you listen. Take care and God bless. Good morning, everyone. It's such a privilege to be here again and to see your beautiful faces. I'm sure that the Father is delighted with um, you because... That's why he paid the highest price to have you. Because you are valuable to him. I don't, I don't care what you've been going through. I don't care what you think. The truth remains the same. God didn't send his only son for nobody. He sent it for somebody. And that somebody became his body. You are his body. How well do you look after your body? How well do you think God would look after His body? You are part of His body. Every one of you are part of His body. His love for you cannot be measured. You haven't even scratched the surface of understanding His love for you. The best way of demonstrating His love for you was to lay down His life for you. To take on eternal punishment for you. To take what you deserved upon himself so that you wouldn't have to carry it. You know, the only reason in the Old Testament that sickness had any legal rights on anybody's body was because sin had a judgment against man. In the New Testament, Jesus completely eradicated the power of sin. So that sickness has no legal rights in your life anymore. Every sickness and disease that is currently attacking Christians is an act of treason and it is illegal. I want you to understand this. You are kingdom citizens. You were born from above. John 1 says that for all who received him and called upon his name, he gave them the power to become the sons and daughters of God. I don't know about you, but I did that. Did you do that? How many of you did that? Amen. So you did that. Now, if you haven't done that, guess what? You're in the right place this morning. You'll get to do that. Amen. As citizens of the kingdom, we're here to represent heaven. Do you know that you carry heaven wherever you go? Because God told Solomon, don't build me a temple. I don't want one built with human hands. I want you. He built you. You are his temple. And God doesn't want to visit you. He doesn't need a visitor's card. He owns you. You're his property. He wants to abide in you. He wants habitation. You know, the only time when we feel the presence of God is when we start to realize that he's always been there all along. Have you ever been in a house and you've been so busy that you have just been passing one another like ships in the mist? Ever had something like that happen? But that's how it is in our lives when we get so distracted with life that we don't focus 
on the fact that He's always with us. Look, either He's with us or Jesus lied. Which one do you think it is? He said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you even to the end of the age. So are you alone? Even when you're in your room, even when you're at work, when you're on your own, you're never alone. You know when that little voice tells you no one will know? God knows. And so do you. And unless you're no one, and He's no one, that voice is a lie. Isn't that right? Listen, I ask for grace from you this morning. Because what I'm going to be covering, I have to deliver in grace. Because I'm hoping that this morning, based on everything you've heard this morning, the Holy Spirit will bring revelation, knowledge, and understanding to your heart. Because I cannot do that. I can only share with you what I know and what He's done for me. And I hope that if you can hear me this morning, that you will make a shift. You will stop looking towards what God can do for you and that you will look back towards what He has already accomplished. This morning, I'm hoping to help you move from what we would call an old covenant way of thinking to a new covenant way of thinking. Now, you've heard a lot about grace, I'm sure. And you've heard a lot about law versus grace. And it's part of that, but it doesn't end there. Because the shift from the old to the new is bigger than just law and grace. It's also a shift from understanding that there was a way that God had to treat people in the Old Testament, and there's a way that God wants to treat us now in the New Testament. Are you all with me still? I'm happy to hear you're still there. So if you can, please go with me in your Bibles, because we aren't going to be using them today. So, you know, like when you, hand, when you pull out your Bible and then you realize the, the Scripture's up there, and then you think, why do I bring my Bible to church? Well, today, well done, you brought your Bible to church, you get to use it. Amen? Okay, so if you can, please go with me in 2 Timothy 2.15, very short Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15. I want to prove this to you so that you know that I'm not just making it up. Amen? Is that good? It says, study to show yourself approved by God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, in the best explanation of this, what it means is understanding the season and the time that you live in based on the season and the time that the person in the biblical account you're reading about was living in. You understand that? So understanding where you are within the plan of God and where they were within the plan of God, so that you can draw from what they've experienced, but not misunderstand from where they are to where you are. Because as you know, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 verse 4, that by his wounds, sorry, verse 5, that by his wounds we are healed. How many of you have heard that? In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter writes, by his wounds we were healed. Which means that Peter thought that he could change Scripture. How dare he? Maybe some of us should travel back in time and tell him he was wrong. Or maybe Peter understood that something had been fulfilled. You see, when a prophecy is fulfilled, then the prophetic word 
is no longer a prophetic word about the future. It is now a fulfilled prophetic word. It has come into being. How many of you have heard the statement, God is going to do a new thing? Come on. Don't all look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. God is going to do a new thing. Well, guess what? He did a new thing. That was Jesus. Jesus had never been done before. Nothing like Jesus had ever happened. And he said, and no one will stop it. I will do it. My right hand will make it happen. And no one will get in the way. Did Jesus show up? Could anything get in his way? You see what I'm saying? So God did a new thing. Now that new thing is a new creature. Because through Jesus Christ, we come into a relationship with God and we're created to be brand new citizens of heaven, like I explained before. Isn't that right? So would you say there's a shift between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament son of God? Well, let's see if that's true. Go with me to Hebrews 1. I love you guys. You're awesome. You can do this. Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 4, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So how did God speak to the people in the Old Testament? Through the prophets. But, now what does the word but mean? It means that whatever I just told you is no longer valid. If I told you I'm going to give you a million rand, but, guess what? You're not getting a million rand. Isn't that right? So, so right now, he says, look, long ago, this is how it happened. But now, things have changed. Isn't that right? Okay. So, but, in these last days, so we've, we believe we're still living in the last days. Am I correct? Okay. In these last days, Jesus, or God, has spoken to us by his Son. Now, is has a future tense? A present tense or a past tense? So how important are the words of Jesus? <laughs> Is that tricky? It's just true, right? So it says, In the last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, and through whom all the world was created. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power, making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, and having become much superior to the angels, as the name He inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, so what does it all mean to us? Well, it means, number one, no longer are we needing guidance from prophets because we have already heard from God's Son. But hold on, does that mean the prophetic is dead in the new covenant? No, of course not. The prophetic just takes a different shape. It has to come in agreement with the words of Jesus. Any prophecy you have that disagrees with what Jesus said is a lie. And then you judge the prophetic word. You don't judge the person who is delivering the prophetic word. Because how many of you have delivered a prophetic word? Come on, you can be honest. Have you ever got it wrong? So is it possible? Is this morning too honest for you? 
I've gotten it wrong. And so that's fine. But we're meant to judge the prophetic word. We're not meant to judge the prophets. And why is it that the prophet would be upset if we judge the prophetic word? Well, it must only be because the identity is in the prophetic word rather than in God. You see, if your prophetic word gets judged and you feel offended, it's because you're not whole in him, you're whole in your prophetic word. Your identity is in that word. That's not true, is it? Because God loves you independent of whatever word you give. Come on. Isn't it true? God doesn't doesn't love you because you give prophetic words or love you because you heal the sick. He loved you before you did that. Am I right? Today, we get to lay hands on the sick. We get to cast out devils. We get to give prophetic words. Why? Because we're children of the light. And that's what the light does. It brings freedom and it destroys the darkness. Hey, by the way, has any one of you ever found a darkness on switch? Nobody? Still looking for it myself. But there's a light on switch, right? How long does the darkness last when you put the lights on? So why are you so afraid of the darkness? Maybe you should just show up. Because you are the light of the world. Jesus said, let your light shine. Isn't it? Okay, so hold on. Let your light shine. Do you know that let your light shine is an instruction to do something that if you don't do it, it won't happen. Right? So it's not, don't worry, you will just shine everywhere you go. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, proactively let your light shine. Don't hide your light. Let it shine. And for what purpose? That all men may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So who's your Father? God in heaven. Isn't that right? Okay. Are you following with me so far? All right. So what we're doing is, we're looking, and I'm I'm showing you in Hebrews 1, how there's a division between the old and the new, and how we move from the old to the new. To the new. Now listen, many of the problems you're facing today, many of the things that are on top of you today, are on top of you because of how you think about life and whether you see an opportunity or a disaster. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you think when God sees a disaster that we think is a disaster, do you think He sees a disaster or do you think He sees an opportunity for His glory? Alright, so we're going to talk about being able to have a New Testament God perspective. Because the tragedies that you see in your life are opportunities for the goodness of God to break in and demonstrate God's glory so that everyone can see just how good He really is. The problem is, we're so overwhelmed by the mountain we're facing that we're not ready to actually even activate a faith of a mustard seed that we carry. You've heard this how many times? Don't speak to the mountain. So don't speak to God about your mountain. Speak to the mountain about your God. Have you heard that? How much faith do you need? A mustard seed? To do what? To move a mountain. 
So why do most people act like you need a mountain of mustard seed? If only we had great faith. Do you know the disciples thought exactly the same thing? Do you know that? And they would. Why wouldn't they? They were watching Jesus when he told that, that uh, messenger from the Roman centurion. I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. They heard that. And then what were they thinking? Oh, we need to get that stuff. Then we're going to impress the master. Isn't that right? So teacher, teach us to have great faith. That's what they asked him. And he said, <clears throat> you have a faith in God, have faith in me also. If you have faith as a mustard seed, it's kind of a bit of an anticlimax. Isn't it? It's exactly how the scripture goes. You will speak to this mountain and you will command it to go into the sea. And if you do not doubt in your heart that what you say with your mouth is true, the mountain will move. Now, is that just a fairy tale? Or is it in our Bibles? So it's in our Bibles. Jesus taught his disciples that. Am I right? So that means that every single one of you here had the capacity to do exactly what Jesus said. Because he said, anyone. Which means you so one. Isn't that right? I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care where you find yourself. Every one of you have a mouth. And every one of you have a heart. And every one of you can trust God. He's given you the capacity to do that. How many of you know what faith is? Well, let's quote it. Faith is the substance of things hopeful. The evidence of things not seen. That was great. Very helpful. Everyone now knows what faith is. You know how many times you read that and you're like, what is he saying? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What it's really saying is that faith is the title deed. That something has been promised to you that's already yours that you haven't yet seen. So it's like someone died and they gave you a title deed to a piece of land you've never seen. Guess what? That title deed means it's yours even though you haven't seen it yet. And what is faith? Faith is actually your trust in the one who made the promise. Your ability to trust the one who made the promise is your faith. So the faith is the substance. Your trust in the one who made the promise is the substance of the very thing you are hoping for. How, much, how many of you understand faith a little bit better now? How many of you would like to know that you're using faith right now? Okay, how much thought did you give to sitting down in the chair you, you're sitting on right now? When you came in here and you found your chair, did you think about it? Is this chair going to hold me up? Why not? You've been here before, right? You know that chair is good, isn't that right? If you have a bad experience with the chair, what do you do? Avoid it. <laughs> isn't that right? Or you get rid of it. Am I, am I right? Okay. So that means that the chair is currently making a promise, isn't it? It's promising to not drop you. And you're looking at it and you're judging with your eyes that the, the metal is strong enough and that the, the, the chair can actually do what it's promising. Am I right? So if we look at God, is He able to do what He says He will do? Can we judge Him with our hearts and with, 
what we see in His Word, that He is capable, that He is able. Can we? Is anything impossible for Him? And how come very few people sit down as comfortably in God as they do on their chair? Because the devil has done a very good job of teaching you to think that God is against you and not for you. That's why. That's why. And the truth is, He's for you, not against you. Whoever wants to have faith needs to know this, that God exists and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Have, have you learned something so far? Have you learned something so far? Alright. We're in a better covenant. How many of you know that? Can I see your hands? Because there might be some people who don't know. Alright. Hebrews 8.6 says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry because he is a mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. That means that we have something better than what we had before. Amen? That means if, if you want to live as a Jew, then, then you're not living as a New Testament believer. Because if living as a Jew was right, then God would never have found a reason to make a new covenant. And when He brought a new covenant, what did He do? He destroyed the old one. How? By fulfilling it. How many of you know that Jesus fulfilled the old covenant? So He was the fulfillment of the old covenant and He was the offering for the new one. So Jesus becomes the one who closes the door on the old chapter and opens the door on the new chapter. Are you with me? So now we have a new covenant with Him, one that is established by His blood, not by the blood of bulls and goats. Does it make sense? And it's on better promises. Why? Because the righteousness that in the Old Testament you'd have to earn, you now get free of charge because Jesus fulfilled it for you. So when you're in Him, everything that was promised to the righteous is now yours. What does it say about the righteous? The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. You should be a little bit happier about that. I'm just waiting for you to respond. The righteous are bold as lions. Let me hear you roar. The righteous are blessed going in. They're blessed coming out. Come on, guys. This is what the Bible is teaching us. Isn't it right? So we can see that in the New Covenant, that righteousness is not something that's dependent on us, but it's something that's dependent on Him. The only part we play is to trust that it is ours. Now, if you have, if you have an understanding of what I'm talking about, that we've moved from the old to the new, which situation can you face that's too big for you? Do you think God has got a relationship situation that is too big for Him? Do you think God has got a financial situation that's too big for Him? Do you think God has got any other situation that's too big for Him? Okay, let me ask you one question. Where does God live? Where? Who believes that? Do you believe that? Now, I'm just here to remind you what you believe. 
Sometimes we forget, isn't it? Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why? Because we forget. Isn't that right? We forget. So now I'm reminding you, God lives in you. How powerful is God? Can he do anything? So what's stopping him? Ah, some honest people. Thank you. To the degree that your mind is renewed to the way that God thinks, to that degree, you will be able to allow His power to move in your life. Now here's the problem you're having. The problem you're having is that you're living in a world that is bombarding you almost 24-7 with the way that the world thinks. And that you're spending very little time reprogramming your mind to the way that God thinks. And sometimes that's because we don't believe we can think like God. My last scripture I want to go to is Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verse 6. How many of you heard, have heard the statement? God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Have you heard that? Now, I'm not here to offend you. I'm here to challenge you. So we're going to have an honest look at that. In Isaiah 55, Verse 6 to 9, it's where that scripture comes from. Verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, and let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Whose thoughts and whose ways? The wicked man and the unrighteous man. Am I right? Is that context, guys? Okay, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, you know, the request here is that they should turn away from wicked ways and unrighteous thoughts. Am I correct? Now, how can you turn away from it if you can't have righteous thoughts and holy ways? How can you turn away from it? Is it possible to turn away from it? It has to be possible if God is saying, turn away from it. Am I right? While we were praising and worshiping, I had a picture of um, someone getting one of those Kia cupboards to build. You know those, those things in America where they, they send you the whole appliance all in its breakdown version and you've got to build it yourself. Okay, have you ever tried to build a cupboard that's got instructions? Hey? Okay, so remember the, when you get it, you get it with something called an instruction. Right? Why is it there? Because you've got no cooking clue how this thing goes together. Isn't that right? It comes with the instructions. Now, you know, when we, when we get the instructions, how many of you have ever been thankful that there's a set of instructions on the internet or via a booklet that helped you get something done. Anybody? But yet we have a book here that tells us many instructions and somehow obedience is offensive to people. Somehow building it according to the instructions is a problem. Oh, that's just religious smart. How are you going to build the right thing if you don't follow the instructions? And then every time you build it and it breaks, you go, God, why are you doing this to me? And he goes, you're not following the instructions. 
Oh, Jesus. Hallelujah. Do you know that you will never fulfill God's plan in your life until you become obedient to His plan in your life? Since when has obedience become a swear word? Every parent in this room wants their child to be obedient. And not because it's going to help you more, it's going to help them. Because if they don't learn it, guess what? One day the policeman will teach them. Or even worse, they won't know to look left and right when they cross the road. And, and that won't be nice, will it? Obedience isn't a bad thing, guys. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to know what to do. The worst place in the world is to not know what to do. To have no instruction. To be completely abandoned. To have no father. To be an orphan. And many people have welcomed being an orphan instead of welcoming their father and recognizing that they're a son. Obedience is a privilege. Because it's a privilege that protects us and prevents us from building the wrong thing and having to start all over again. You can build the right thing. Just follow the instructions. I'm not saying do it void of relationship with God. I'm saying the instructions are there from God. Let Him help you build it. Amen? Is this making sense to you guys? And, and by no means am I going against anything that you guys currently believe. I'm only trying to encourage you to use what you have. Because if we don't hear the word and do the word and share the word, the word doesn't get spread and the example of Christ is not seen. Why would the world want what you have when what you have is exactly the same as what they have? With one difference, of course, you wake up early on a Sunday, they get to sleep in. Well done, church. That is not enough. Am I right? They should look at our lives and go, man, I don't know what's up with these people, but whatever they have, I want it. Isn't that right? Christianity should be a lifestyle. It shouldn't be something that we just do on a weekend or midweek. It should be every single day of our lives. And the reason you don't is because you think that you don't have the mind of Christ. It's because you think that God's ways are higher than your ways and His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And watch this, right here. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than the ways there your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And He's talking about the unrighteous man and the wicked man. And He's not talking about you unless you believe you are wicked and unrighteous. How many of you are wicked and unrighteous? But if you believe in grace, you can't say that. Am I right? Because Jesus has made you righteous. And He has given you His Spirit so that you may know His thoughts. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7, it says, oh, sorry, not, not 7, in 10, it says, These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person which is in him? Now we know that we haven't received the Spirit of the world. Isn't that right? But we've received what? The Spirit that is from God. It means we've got the Spirit of God living in us. So can we know God's thoughts? Well, it says here we can. 
Because God wants us to know His thoughts. Quick hands. How many of you believe God is in ultimate control? He's, he's sovereign. Do you believe that? Well, then He gets to tell you how this works. You don't get to tell Him how it works. If He says, go lay hands on the sick, who are you to tell Him no? Who are you? Are you God? Or is He God? Come on. We like to use it when there's disaster so we can blame Him. But somehow, when it comes to following what He's told us to do, well, it doesn't apply then. Guys, there is a reality in which God's sovereignty is in tension with your responsibility. And if you're not willing to take responsibility, then you can't have power. Because authority is given to those who are willing to take responsibility. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Just, just think about it in your own life, with your own children. You couldn't give your child something to do that you know that they wouldn't be able to hand responsibly. Isn't that right? So they need to first be willing to take the responsibility before you can give them the authority to do that particular thing. So you can't have power until you're willing to take responsibility. And that means you have a heart for other people and you want to see them set free. So the minute that you decide, I'm going to act on behalf of others, God sees that. He gives you responsibility and authority. Done. Does it make sense to you? So it's, it's not complicated, right? In verse 14, sorry, verse 16, it says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Do you have the mind of Christ? Are you willing to possess it? You know, the Bible's clear. It says that we should repent from thinking that we can't have the mind of Christ. Isn't that right? To renew your mind means to come in agreement with the fact that what you were thinking before is wrong and what you are thinking now is right. Am I right? Before we were each one in our own way, now we have all come, returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, Jesus Christ. Am I right? So today, I'm not doing a call for people to repent from anything else other than wanting God to help them renew their minds. Because when you see life the way God sees life, you'll see opportunity instead of destruction. You'll see that what you think was gloomy is actually an opportunity for the glory of God. And you'll use the authority He's given you to set the captives free and to change the situation you're in. Is it possible? Yes, because all things are possible to God. You know what it also says? All things are possible to those who believe. Do you believe? So what's possible for you? At least for the ten of you who answered. How many things are possible? Can I hear you, church? All things are possible. Why? Because you believe. Can I take five minutes to tell you something that backs this up scientifically? In your body, you have cells, right? Every single cell in your body has a reproductive system. It has a respiratory system. It has a digestive system. It has an ocular system. It has every single system that you have in your entire body in itself. 
It is like a mini you. Every cell. No matter what it is. A bone cell, a fat cell. Every cell. In the 1960s, they were trying to find or map the human genome. How, how many of you remember that? And they were working towards it. And I think in the 90s, somewhere, they finally got it right. But from that time until now, they've been doing research on cells to find out what it is that makes a cell a particular type of cell. Because they know that in the umbilical cord, each cell is called a stem cell. And those stem cells become a bone cell, a fat cell, a liver cell. But yet it's the same cell. So they're trying to figure out, well, what happens to the DNA and the RNA in a cell so that it is a particular cell? How does that happen? Fair question? So what they did is, they took some stem cells and they put them in a solution and they had them multiply, so they made sure they had the exact copy of that stem cell, right? And then they took that cell, okay, and they placed that cell in three or four different dishes. Each dish had a different solution with a different chemical, com different chemical composition. Does that make sense? And so they put the stem cells in these different dishes, and over some time, the cells started growing and feeding off of what's in the dish, and voila, they found bone cells, and then they found liver cells, and they found fat cells, and they were like impressed, okay? So we know that the solution has some kind of impact, but what happens? How is it that it works? So, one guy came up with an idea. He said, well, what would happen if I remove the nuclei from the cell? We believe that the nuclei of the cell is the brain of the cell. Isn't that right? That that's the command center. That's what I was taught when I was at school. I'm sure you were taught the same thing. Um, and that nuclei, if you take it out, it's like shooting someone in the head, wouldn't it be? And what, would, what should happen if you take the nuclei out? It should just die, right? It should completely go away. Okay. So what they did is they said, well, let's do the experiment. So they took the nuclei out, and voila, the cell continued to live very happily for about eight months. Only thing it never did was reproduce, so it wouldn't multiply. And then they realized what they had thought was the brain is actually the reproductive system of the cell. So where is the brain? Well, hopefully, the brain was actually called the membrane. Because it's a member of the brain. <laughs> the membrane. Because the outside of the cell has got a series of triggers and receivers and transmitters on it that influence the state of the internal reality of that cell. So based on what you eat, based on how you live, based on how happy you are, based on how sad you are, all these things have an effect on every single cell in your body. You guys okay so far? Not too biologically, right? Not too bio. Don't feel like you're in a biological class, right? Okay, so now remember this. Remember this very carefully. They started studying what is the impact of the solution. Well, they put the solutions in and they could destroy cells and create malignant cells based on different solutions. All right? Are you following so far? Okay. So then what happens is they begin to find out that what a person believes has an impact on what their body receives. Because every cell in your body doesn't know about what's going on on the outside of your body. Only you do. You're conscious. How many of you like spiders? No one. No one likes spiders? 
Anyone keep spiders at home? Don't put up your hand. No one will visit. Okay, so um, anyone like snakes? Okay, those of you who like snakes, when you see snakes, if you like them, is your first thought, I wonder what that one is called, or that's a nice snake, oh, it's pretty. Is that your thought? But for everyone else, what are you thinking? Get out of here! Boom! Isn't that right? Okay, do you see that there are two very different perceptions on exactly the same reality? To one person, it's a disaster. To the other person, it's an opportunity. Come on. See, I'm backing this up all the way. Scripture backs us up. Science backs us up. You see, when you believe that what you're facing is going to kill you, guess what? And why are you surprised when you die? Shock and horror. You're the one who wanted it. You believed it. But if the God that's with you is greater than what you're facing, then guess what? Come hell, storm, weather, no matter mountain, valley, it doesn't make a difference. I'm coming out on top. And having that kind of attitude alone immediately affects the way that your cells respond. Your cells literally have a positive response to your positive response. Isn't that just amazing? Now, I want to clear one thing up before I leave. Placebo is not a word people can use to excuse away healing. Placebo is the word that science has given faith. Because in every single instance when someone has given a placebo to someone, 60% of the time they have gotten healed for real. And stayed healed. You understand? So a placebo isn't this thing, oh, it's just a placebo, like somehow you're hypnotized for a while and then you lose your healing. No. If someone with authority tells you this will heal you and you believe them, and you take it, your faith will get you well. Because that's how powerful the mechanism is in your body. This is making sense now. So every single cell in your body does this. Now when you live under fear and frustration and anxiety, your body releases cortisone. Cortisone, what it does is it literally disables your immune system and makes you vulnerable to all kinds of sicknesses. Which is exactly what the devil wants because then he makes you an easy target. And then he can send anything your way and everything your way. And if you don't have the right understanding and you don't have a good relationship with God as your father, you will eventually blame him for it. And that's the problem. And then God is no longer your friend. He becomes your enemy. And I'm here to tell you, God loves you and he's your friend. And there's nothing you're facing today that is too big for him. And because it's never too big for him, it's never too big for you. Amen? Amen.